Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. Herbicide application temporarily closed a portion of the Beeline Trail on Tuesday. The stretch of trail between the Bloomington Banquet Sculpture and 7th Street was rerouted through the City Hall employee parking lot. The herbicide was applied to kill weeds growing in the Farmer's Market Plaza. If left untreated, it could become a tripping hazard. Community Relations Manager Julie Ramey communicated news of the closure prior to the event. The application itself will take, oh, a half hour, 45 minutes, and we are waiting four hours to make absolutely sure that the chemical is dry before we open the trail back up for people to use. According to the Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department, manual removal of the weeds is not an option. Ramey said the roots grow underneath the bricks of the Farmer's Market Plaza, and if staff removed the tops of the weeds, the roots would respout within days. Ramey said all options for weed removal were carefully reviewed. Parks and Recreation weighs very carefully any opportunities to use pesticides versus other types of control for pests or vegetation of all kinds. And um, we're just very careful about it and have a, a really detailed record of any time we use chemicals in our parks and along our trails. It's something we try to avoid. If we have to use them, we are as careful and as conservative as possible. Ramey explained that the application of herbicides is dependent on the weather. Because it did not rain Monday, the department was able to apply the herbicide and close the affected portion of the trail as scheduled. It lasted from 8 a.m. to noon. In regional news, under Scott Pruitt, whom President Trump named chief administrator of the EPA, the agency is dragging its feet when it comes to cracking down on an East Chicago, Indiana air polluter. On a visit to East Chicago several months ago, Pruitt said cleaning up the city would be one of its top priorities. East Chicago, predominantly African-American and Latino, houses Indiana Harbor Coke Company, which has committed hundreds of air pollution violations in the recent years. Among the chemicals the company releases into the air are lead, sulfur dioxide, and soot. Indiana Harbor Coke Company bakes coal into high-carbon coke for steel mills, steel mills and sits on the southwest shore of Lake Michigan. Over 100,000 people live within a five-mile radius of the plant. They include residents of a neighborhood that's being evacuated, as we reported before, because a housing project is located on a lead-contaminated Superfund site that's the former location of a lead smelter. 
Also in Indiana, Northern Indiana Public Service Company, or NIPSCO, said it will hold off on installing wastewater pollution controls at its largest coal plant in Indiana, as industry groups continue to challenge the Environmental Protection Agency ruling that led to the installation plan. NIPSCO asked Indiana regulators in November 2016 to approve a $400 million plan for pollution control systems in order to comply with federal rules regulating wastewater along with coal ash storage. However, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt in April 2017 said the agency would not enforce the deadlines for the wastewater rule, known as Effluent Limitation Guidelines. The EPA decided to tread water as energy industry groups continue to challenge the rule. NIPSCO recently said it would drop the part of its plan asking for $170 million from ratepayers to pay for a wastewater system at its 2,000-megawatt Schaefer generation, Generating Station in Wheatfield, Indiana. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, a group of Catholic nuns is protesting the plan to build the $3 billion Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline for transporting fracked gas through Lancaster County. The nuns, who belong to the Order of Adorers of the Blood of Christ, have constructed a simple chapel in a cornfield on their land, which the pipeline is set to run through. The nuns are part of the Lancaster Against Pipelines grassroots group and have filed a complaint with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which approved the pipeline. Their legal challenge is based on religious freedom. The nuns' lawyers are arguing that the decision to force the nuns to harbor the pipeline conflicts with their religious beliefs in which protecting the environment is paramount. In 2005, the nuns adopted a land ethic upholding the sacredness of creation, which holds that the earth is a sanctuary where all life is protected. Their lawyers told the court that the nuns' religious beliefs include educating and addressing significant social and environmental justice issues. Another pipeline protest made headlines this summer. It took them two weeks to do it, but a group walked the route of the proposed Atlantic Coast Pipeline in Virginia from June 16th to July 2nd. They didn't call themselves protesters, but celebrants. The lead organizer, Lee White, said at the end of the journey, quote, We did not walk to protest. We walked to celebrate. To celebrate the land and what's there, the beauty, the people, what can be destroyed by Dominion's pipeline, unquote. The pipeline route is to bisect Virginia on the diagonal from northwest to southeast. The walk in Virginia involved 150 miles of forests, mountains, rivers, streams, farms, and residences, all of which are at risk from the fracked gas pipeline. The whole pipeline is 600 miles long and is supposed to transport gas from West Virginia to Virginia and then south to East North Carolina. People have been protesting it since it was announced three years ago. According to the new Carbon Majors Report, 100 companies caused over 70% of the planet's greenhouse gas emissions between 1988 and 2015. Over half of those emissions have been caused by 25 corporate and state-owned entities and have contributed significantly to climate change. The most polluting investor-owned companies are ExxonMobil, Shell, 
BP, and Chevron. China, in pursuing coal, emitted over 14% of the industrial greenhouse gas. ExxonMobil was in fifth place with almost 2% of the emissions. Michael Brun, executive director of the Sierra Club, said that investors should stop investing in fossil fuels. He said, quote, Not only is it morally risky, it's economically risky. The world is moving away from fossil fuels toward clean energy and doing so at an accelerated pace. Those left holding investments in fossil fuel companies will find their investments becoming more and more risky over time, unquote. On July 19th, the journal Science Advances published the results of a new study on the prevalence of plastic waste in the world. Since 1950, the chemical industry has produced over 9 billion tons of plastic, enough to bury Manhattan under two miles of plastic garbage. The plastics manufactured since 1950 are still present, the report says, and don't break down. In fact, the study found that the volume of plastics made and discarded is accelerating. In 2015, industry created 448 million tons of the stuff, over twice as much as manufactured in 1998. Of the 9 billion tons of plastic, almost 7 billion tons are no longer being used. A mere 9% was recycled and another 12% incinerated, which causes its own chemical pollution problems. That left 5.5 tons of plastic trash on land and in waterways. Congress is threatening the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge with oil and gas drilling. A subtly worded passage in the newly released House of Representatives budget doesn't mention the refuge, but could allow drilling in it. The refuge is one of the last pristine wilderness areas in the U.S. For many years, fossil fuel companies have desired to open the refuge for drilling, but critics have halted the plan. Today, the situation is different. Republicans dominate Congress, and President Trump enthusiastically advocates Arctic drilling. Trump's budget director says that drilling in the refuge is one of the administration's top priorities. According to the Sierra Club, it's plain that the refuge is under attack. Defenders of Wildlife says the budget wording signals an attempt to sell out our public lands to the fossil fuel industry. According to the Wilderness Society, the refuge is a national treasure that we have a moral obligation to protect. And a July 12th report in the journal Nature indicates that the remote Arctic tundra is contaminated with mercury, affecting the fish and other marine animals that indigenous communities ingest. Scientists think the mercury in the Arctic originates with the burning of coal and other industrial activities. A gaseous form of the element travels through the atmosphere to the Arctic from other regions in the world. Scientists speculate that plants absorb the mercury primarily in the summer, when snow cover is minimal. The way vegetation plucks carbon dioxide out of the air. As the plants drop their leaves or die, the mercury transfers to the soil. Eventually, it leaches into rivers and other waterways, which transport it to the Arctic Ocean. Climate change affects the Arctic vegetation, snow cover, sunlight, and heat, all of which play major roles in the way mercury moves through the atmosphere and into the soil. Finally, you may be wondering about the Larsen Sea iceberg that separated from Antarctica a week or so ago. 
This is the iceberg the size of Delaware. It has drifted only a short distance, about 1.5 miles from the ice shelf, and is cracking up. <laughs> Not laughing, simply cracking up. Ugh. And that's the news for this week. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. So what's this, like, nine minutes? In today's Eco Report feature, correspondent Cole Stinson reports about a wind farm project put on hold by government officials in Rush and Henry counties. After two years of court trials, a company wanting to build a wind farm in Rush County, Indiana, lost a battle with local officials over how close the turbines could be to uninvolved homes. Apex Clean Energy specializes in creating clean electricity through solar panels and wind turbines. They have been working with Rush and Henry counties to build a wind farm called Flat Rock Wind. The two counties are situated about an hour east of Indianapolis. The dispute began in July 2015 when the Rush County Board of Zoning Appeals enacted a 2,300-foot setback distance for non-participating property lines. They specifically changed the distance from the county stated minimum of 1,000 feet. One concern the Board of Zoning Appeals had that influenced the decision was infrasound. Infrasound is a noise composed of waves with frequencies so low that humans can't hear them. While people can't hear them, the Board of Zoning Appeals believes that they can still do harm if people are exposed to them for long periods of time. Claims about the effects of infrasound from wind turbines are unproven, though they are often cited by those protesting wind farm projects. Attorney for the Rush County Board of Zoning Appeals, Stephen Snyder, said his defendants were being misunderstood. We're not dealing with, as has been alleged, anti-wind people. We're dealing with people who didn't want a 600-foot wind tower within 1,000 feet of their back door, because that would be like having it in your backyard from that standpoint. If built as first envisioned, Flat Rock Wind could serve as an economic powerhouse for Rush and Henry counties, according to Flat Rock Wind project manager Aaron Baker. A 180-megawatt project would generate enough electricity to power over approximately 80,000 homes each year. Apex Clean Energy conservatively estimates that Flat Rock Wind, if built as originally planned, will deliver about $18 million in new property tax revenues to both Henry and Rush counties over the life of the project. And these new Tax revenues will make additional funding available for local government, schools, emergency services, etc. And payments would include approximately $2.6 million directly to local schools and $2.4 million in economic development payments to the counties. And then in addition to that, this would be paired with lease payments to landowners totaling over $20.6 million over the life of the project. The project would also provide roughly 200 local construction jobs and then create 10 
long-term operation and maintenance jobs as well. No representative from Rush County could be reached for comment, but Baker believes the county overstepped its boundaries. The Rush County Board of Zoning Appeals disregarded the turbine setbacks that they outline in their own wind energy ordinance and without justification provided they arbitrarily assigned the Flat Rock Wind Project a new setback from non-participating property lines that is nearly three times greater than the requirement defined in the county's own wind ordinance. And this makes the setback one of the most restrictive in not just Indiana, but in the entire country. Apex took the dispute to the county superior court. Judge Matthew D. Bailey upheld the decision, causing Apex to then go to the Court of Appeals. In the Court of Appeals, the decision still came out against Apex. The court decided that landowners should have a say in where the wind turbines could be in relation to their property. Even if the Rush County Board of Zoning Appeals reversed its decision, the Court of Appeals said that the uninvolved landowners would still be in an unfair situation. They then decided that the Board of Zoning Appeals was in the right to extend the distance from the uninvolved homes in order to, quote, preserve the health and safety of the public. According to the Senior Director of Environmental Affairs at the American Wind Energy Association, Mike Snyder, the Board of Zoning Appeals' health concerns may have been excessive. A lot of the issues out there are known and are predictable and are uh, things that a lot of sound science have gone on to um, properly address those at the community level. But given the loss of the Court of Appeals, Apex made its final attempt by trying to appeal to the Indiana Supreme Court. After all the Supreme Court justices reviewed the case and previous decisions, a unanimous decision was made to deny. Apex is now looking at building flat rock wind in two separate phases, according to Baker. Turbines would first go up in Henry County, but Baker doesn't want to shut the door on Rush County just yet. Apex will continue to try to communicate and negotiate with the Rush County officials, and your hope is that ultimately both counties can benefit from Flat Rock Wind. Although Flat Rock Wind met resistance in Rush County, wind farms are relatively successful in Indiana. According to the American Wind Energy Association, Indiana is in 12th place for installed capacity. In total, this state has about 15 wind projects currently online. Senior analyst for the American Wind Energy Association, Hannah Hunt, praises wind farms in this region. States in the Midwest have, uh, these projects have continuously produced some of the most productive wind turbines in the country and really attracting even investment from corporate investors, including um, Amazon Web Services actually purchases wind energy from an Indiana wind farm. So you're seeing that these are a good economic investment that are in turn helping to employ local Hoosiers in their local communities. Currently, 4.8% of the state's energy comes from wind power, according to the American Wind Energy Association. Hunt said this is roughly the national average, but there is room for improvement. You can look to other states, like Iowa, for example, last year produced over a third of its electricity with wind. And so we've seen proof that uh, states can integrate much higher percentages of wind energy, much higher than the current 5% that Indiana is producing. At the rate the industry is moving at, the American Wind Energy Association said this number has the potential to increase. Hunt said that wind turbines are only becoming more affordable. Over the past seven years, we've seen the cost of wind go down by two-thirds, and 
when the cost of wind has gone down in these recent years, that's due in part uh, largely to performance improvements and to turbine technology advancements that are allowing wind turbines to produce more energy and also to do it at uh, less cost, which is helping us to uh, really achieve the the strong growth that we've seen over uh, the past two years in particular. We've seen two straight years where at least 8,000 megawatts of wind have been installed. The growth of an alternative to fossil fuels sounds contradictory to the Trump agenda, but the American Wind Energy Association claims that things are looking good. Uh, Wind energy really is primed to be part of President Trump's all-of-the-above energy strategy and, and really is effective at domestic energy production, first of all, also uh, providing energy security to the U.S. and providing a good, stable, reliable source of electricity. And I will say that uh, we're working with the administration and we are doing what we can to increase the importance of transmission to help and to increase wind project development over the next 5-10 years. Reporting from WFHB, this is Cole Stinson. Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues, from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light, and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. It's time now for In Nature a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of south-central Indiana. This is In Nature. That, my friends, is the yellow-crowned night heron. It's a rare bird in Indiana. They have a white crown and back with the remainder of the body grayish red eyes and short yellow legs. They have a white stripe below the eye. It's a very handsome bird. It's a medium-sized heron, averaging 24 inches in length. The yellow-crowned night heron is mostly found in southern swamps and coastal areas, but a few can be found breeding northward to Indiana and Illinois. The great majority of the yellow-crowned night heron's diet consists of crustaceans, and it is a nocturnal hunter. Both sexes help build the nest, which can be as high as 60 feet or so, away from the trunk on a horizontal limb, often hanging over water. Initially, the female stands on the nest while a male carries sticks to her as part of the pair bonding process. Later, the female also gathers sticks. The nest takes about 11 days to build initially. Night herons use them for several years, adding to them each year. Nests can be as large as four feet across, with just a shallow depression inside for the two to six eggs. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Now for our weekly events calendar. 
The Indiana Audubon Society will have a butterfly count at the Mary Gray Bird Sanctuary, located at 3499 South Bird Sanctuary Road in Connersville, Indiana, on Saturday, July 29th, from 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. The morning will begin at 10 a.m. with lunch being served at 1 p.m. Meet in the parking lot where you will divide into groups, dress in layers, bring bug repellent, and wear hiking shoes. Contact Carl and Amy Wilms at Wilms, W-I-L-M-S-A-B, at indianaaudubon.org, or call 765-827-5109 to register. You have an opportunity to learn the buzz about the bees on Monday, July 31st at Brown County State Park from 10 to 11 a.m. Buzz by the Brown County State Park Nature Center for this in-depth look into the amazing world of bees. Learn all about their unique family system, how they help in pollination and honey production. Afterwards, spend some time at the Observation Hive to observe the bees up close. There will be a Flora Field Day on Tuesday, August 1st, from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. at the Stillwater North Fork Wildlife Area at Lake Monroe, located on Kent Road in Bloomington, Indiana. Practice with a naturalist to work on your flora identification skills. The field day emphasis is on proper use and application of an ID key, which opens the door to identify thousands of species. Please register by July 29th at http bit.ly forward slash flora field AUG 2017 or call 812-837-9967. Is it a firefly? or a lightning bug. Stop by the campground playground on Wednesday, August 2nd at the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. to learn all about that flashing. Discover why fireflies, also known as lightning bugs, flash and how they do it. You can also make a firefly craft. Learn about the magic of monarchs on Saturday, August 5th from 1 to 2 p.m. at Sherwood Oaks Park in Bloomington, Indiana. Every year, March monarch butterflies embark on an incredible migration over thousands of miles and several generations to Mexico. Some of those monarchs have made a home on the Sherwood Oaks Butterfly Garden. You will have the opportunity to search the garden for monarch eggs, caterpillars, and butterflies, and learn about the remarkable life cycle, ecology, and migration of the monarch. Seeds and resources to design home landscapes to attract monarchs are provided. Please register by August 2nd at bloomington.in.gov forward slash parks. wraps up our show for this week. 
<clears throat> Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Cole Stinson, Norm Holy, and Linda Green. The feature was produced by Norm Holy. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Sarah Vaughn. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.